Genesis chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, Last week, we talked about the God of self. It's a God that we all struggle with. You might call it the God of me, if you like. How often we allow ourselves to dictate the things that we do, the things that we think, the way that we are. We saw Jesus' answer to that self-worship. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross. We follow him. And when we do so, we are freed from the tyranny of worshiping the God of me. This week, we're going to consider another human God, but it's not the individual. And I think it's really on display quite well in Genesis chapter 11. So stand with me as we read the story of the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. This is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. Now, the whole world had one language, and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Pray with me. Father, drive your word deep into our hearts. Change us to be like you. May we reject the false gods and only worship you. You do your work this morning. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we talked about the God of me. This week, we're going to talk about the God of we, the God of humanism. Humanism is a tough ideology to nail down. There are a lot of different strains of it. There's the Ayn Rand strain that's basically uh, just try to do the right thing on your own and be moral even without God. There's the Karl Marx strain that says all of society has to be ordered around certain types of principles. There is the B.F. Skinner strain that says I'm not really interested in ordering society, but I think I can fix psychological problems based on certain behavioral techniques. There are all kinds of different strains of humanism. One commentator writes that trying to succinctly define humanism is like trying to nail jello to a wall. It just doesn't work. But there are some common traits, 
some core tenets of humanism that I think we really need to, to grasp if we are going, if we're going to identify the false god and know how to reject it. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about these, some of these core tenets. There are several different uh, uh, documents that have kind of described variations of humanism. Uh, there are two different uh, humanist manifestos uh, that were written. There was a secular humanist manifesto that was written. And then there are others. There's the writings of several different individuals. I've named some of them. There's others as well. But there are some core tenets that really kind of uh, uh, work in all three of these, whether they call themselves secularist or religious, whether they consider themselves more along the lines of, of psychologist or more along the lines of sociologist or more along the lines of philosophers. In any case, they all kind of hold a couple of tenets at their core. The first is that we are our standard. Now, this is not a new idea. In fact, in the 5th century BC, there was a Greek philosopher by the name of Protagoras. Protagoras wrote a statement that is kind of a, a summation of this idea. He says, man is the measure of all things, of things that are, that they are, of things that aren't, that they aren't. Now, what he was saying was that when we look at things like truth and beauty and justice and, and those kinds of big picture things that we interpret those based on our own experiences, our knowledge and our experiences and the way that we view things impacts how we look at these big picture type things. But many have taken that statement further to not only say that we measure things by ourselves, but that we should measure things by ourselves, that we should be the standard upon which truth is built, upon which our worldviews happen to be. That truth and, and that beauty and that justice and things like that are not outside objectives, outside of us as men, but that we determine what they are. And that's how view, humanists view truth. Truth depends on the individual, what you think, what you've experienced, what you know. That truth can be different for someone else because they've had different experiences. They have, they have different knowledge. They have a different perspective. But there's also a corporate aspect to truth. That society as a whole, this collection of individuals within a society, shape how truth is interacted with in a society. Man or men in the collective become the standard of truth. Now the story of the Tower of Babel paints us a picture of this doctrine. Men come in together. It's men determining the greater good. Men determining what they should do. They determine to settle in one place together because it seems to be a great place to live. They coordinate their activities. They make and dry the bricks to build a city and a tower. For the people at Babel, everything revolves around their communal desires, their communal efforts, their communal ambitions. Man is the measure, the standard by which everything is to be judged. And the reason that man makes the appropriate standard in the humanist view is that we are basically good. Now, humanists will tell you men can do bad stuff and men can be bad people, but there's always a reason for that. Something went wrong somewhere. If you read the writings of Karl Marx, he'll tell you 
that, that the reason that people steal is because they don't have enough. The injustice of the system causes people to lack what they need and so they steal in order to get what they need. And that with good, hard labor and a just distribution of wealth and things, that it, everything will be better. He's not the only one that holds to that. Humanism as a whole holds that if you want to correct the problems of society, you have to correct the injustices of society. That people need to be doing what's good for the common, good for the collective, instead of what they see as good for themselves. And so you have to incentivize that, and you have to redistribute wealth, and you have to do these things in order for people to be able and be free to be good. The Secular Humanist Declaration in 1981 says this, quote, Secular humanism placed trust in human intelligence rather than in divine guidance, unquote. With enough intelligence, with enough education and training, and enough provision of goods, you can make men behave right. You can make men be good. We can be our own salvation. People on our own are good enough. We just have to enable them to be so. It's inherent. Verse 1 of Genesis 11 the whole earth had one language and the same words. There's a wordplay going on here. He's not just saying that they all talk the same. He's saying more than that. He's saying that they all think the same. Everyone is in agreement. They have one language. They have the same words. They are all on the same page. They're all in agreement. They're all looking out for what they see as the common good. This is a people who believe that they're right. And they're all in agreement on what's right. And so they all work together in concert with one another to make that happen. Now that sounds pretty good. Almost makes you want to start singing, we are the world, we are the children, right? But notice how they act with one mind. They use the same language and the same words, verse 1. Verse 2, they all migrate to the same place. Verse 3, they all take up the same work, making bricks. And they do it with the same purpose in mind. Verse 4, to build a city and a tower with the same goal to make a name for themselves. And they all have the same fear, lest we be dispersed. They believe in one another so much that they are all bought in. They are their own saviors. They have no need for God whatsoever. And that's the third point. We don't need God. We're good enough on our own. The second humanist declaration in 1973 just, just puts it bluntly. Quote, no deity will save us. We must save ourselves, unquote. That's humanism in a nutshell. The belief that it's all up to us and that we, with enough training and proper access to goods and all that, we will be the heroes that we need. After all, just follow your heart and believe in yourself. God's obsolete. We don't need him anymore. We've... We've evolved past a need for God. <laughs> now this, is, this shines out in the story of Babel, but I want to first take you back to Genesis chapter 1. When God first creates humans, the first thing that he tells them to do, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The very first command that God gives, be fruitful and multiply. Have babies and spread out all over the place. 
It's a command to populate the earth. By the way, if, if, if there is any ideology that stresses depopulation, it is antithetical to the word of God, period. No matter what form it says, no matter how much they claim that the environment needs it or anything else, if the stress is to have less humanity, it is not of God. But the second part of the command, that, that's a freebie, by the way. That, that wasn't even really part of the sermon. That's just, a, that's, just a, that's just a little tidbit for you. But the second part of that command, fill the earth and subdue it. That gets to God's greater design for humanity. You know, God didn't make us just to sit here and twiddle our thumbs. He made us to be part of his reign. He made us to share in his dominion over the created world. He's given us as men and women a prime place in his administration. And just as a government has agents and and those individuals that work to administer the rule of law, so God has his own administration. Now, I want you to raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand. Everybody, come on. Guess who his administration is? It's us. Paul said it this way. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You know what ambassador means? We represent God and do his work. But men at Babel wanted nothing to do with God's work. His instructions were to fill the earth and subdue it, to spread out and to administer his reign over the globe. But what did they do? Look at verse two. As the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now there's a few things going on in this passage. One of them is that they keep going east. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, where do they go? East. And you can follow it at a couple places in Genesis. You can see they go east. They go east. They go east. A little bit later, we're going to meet a guy named Abram and his nephew named Lot. And where does Lot go? Lot goes to the east, towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Men are keep going away from the ideal. They're rejecting God, and so they're moving away from where he would have them be, where he once had them to be. But even though, still, they're going as a group, and they find this nice plain. It looks like a great place to live, great place to build. They settle there. They don't fill the earth. They all settle in one place. Then, and verse 3, then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They abandoned his design. His design was for them to subdue the earth. Instead, they are going to subdue their efforts. Then they said, verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They rejected God's identification for them. Do they belong in the heavens? No, they belonged on the earth. So what are they doing trying to get to the heavens with their tower? Lest, let us make a name for ourselves. Do you know in Scripture the only one who makes a name for himself? The only one who it says, I make my name? Take a guess. God himself, even Jesus says, I do what the Father sent me to do. Of course, Jesus is God. So those, I'll give you all credit for those who are saying Jesus. No, they're going to make a name for themselves, they think so that we don't have to do what God told us to do and be dispersed. All this trouble just to not do what God wants. Humanism seems right on its face. Everyone has one speech and one heart. They're all working on one task with one purpose and one goal. That seems perfect. But there is a way that seems right to man, 
and the end of it is the way to death. It was not God's goal. Their purpose was not God's purpose. Their task was not God's task. Their heart was not God's heart. Their words were not God's words. And so humanism fails every time. So how do we reject it? What do we do? How do we reject this false God of humanism? I think we find the answers in Babel as well. Look at verse five. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Uh, A while back, I referred to a poetic device that the Hebrews often use called chiasm. In chiasm, it's kind of like an onion. There are layers to the onion. And as you get further and further in, once you get to the core, that's the middle part. That's That's where the whole passage hinges on. Everything, it all condenses down in that middle point. Okay, it's the Russian nesting dolls, and you pull it out, there's another doll, you pull it out, there's another doll, pull it out, there's another doll. It's the Oreo, right? You got the, the cookie on the outside, and the cookie's all right, you know, nothing wrong with the cookie, but it's that cream in the middle that makes it good, right? Well, the cream in the Oreo of Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, is verse 5. That's the cream of this Oreo. And, and it, it's full of irony. Men wanted to build a tower that reached to the heavens. But as one commentator put it, it was so small God could hardly see it. I could picture God. It's that tiny speck of what men are doing down there. Let me go, where are my spectacles? I'm going to have to go down there. I can hardly see it from up here. Now, could God really see? Of course he is. He's all seeing. He knows what they're doing. But look at the picture. What man thinks is so enormous and so outstanding and so grand in God's eyes, he has to come, he has to come out of heaven and walk down just to be able to take a look at it. By the way, there's a, there's a lesson in that. Man's best attempt is nothing in the eyes of God. God always has to come down to us. We can never get up to him. There's more shortcomings. Did you notice back in verse 3, they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar? You might not know this. I didn't know this. But bricks are not as strong as stone. And bitumen, bitumen is the poor man's mortar. They had inferior materials. They don't even use the best stuff. They use the knockoff stuff. They went and they bought great value brand cream cheese instead of Philadelphia. Can you believe that? Now, sometimes the cheap stuff's all right, but sometimes you need the good stuff. More shortcomings. When God comes down the city and the tower, when he comes down to see the city and the tower, he's coming to inspect. That that word to see has the idea of inspection. Now, who inspects? The one with authority inspects. These guys, these men, they're building the city and this tower, and they think, they think that they are the ones in charge, that they determine their own path, that they are the ones. They are the standard. Not so. There, there is a higher authority. They are subject to inspection. That's another, that's, a, that's another good point, isn't it? We're always subject to inspection, aren't we? God sees right through man's best attempts. He's going to see the flaws. He's going to see the problems. He's not duped. He sees things clearly. He's not distracted. There's another shortcoming. Who does the building? What does the Bible actually say? Verse 5, again, which who built? The children 
of man. It's subtle, but even that is a shortcoming. They're not called men. These men who want to think of themselves as gods, who would be gods, who would dwell in the heavens, are children. The other day I I listened to part of an interview. This had uh, um, one of the military officials in the United States was talking about the situation in Russia and Ukraine. And he refers in the interview to President Zelensky, and he refers to President Biden, but he, he, he also refers to Mr. Putin. Do, do you hear that level down, that degrading of him, just slight? It's, it's subtle. That's exactly what this author is doing. He's degrading these people in their efforts by saying they're just children of man. They're not even men compared to Yahweh. And that's the name of God used right here, the Lord. That's Yahweh. Compared to Yahweh, these guys, they don't compare. Which is why the first way we reject humanism must be that we make God the standard and not man. The shortcomings of man are prevalent. The author goes out of his way to show just how short these guys come up. We must make God the standard because we are not an appropriate standard. God is the measure. In a world that believes that man determines truth, that man judges beauty, that man gauges progress, we must reject man as the measure and insist be that all things be measured by God's assessment, God's approval, God's glory. You know, God's the only one who is the righteous judge. Skip ahead to Psalm 50, Carrie, if you would. Psalm 50, this is a psalm of Asaph. Go past the next few verses. In Psalm 50, he says this, He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. And that's so good, he's got to take a break. Selah. God's the standard. Man is fickle. He's tossed to and fro with the slightest wind and wave. But God is unchanging. The rock of ages that shall never be moved. So we must admit or we must make God the standard and not man. Second thing, I'm convinced the people of Babel thought that they were good. They really did. I'm convinced they did. I'm convinced they were convinced in the righteousness of their cause. The story shows it. No wonder. So many things that we think of as good are going on. They were united together seeking something that appears to be good, but in reality, they were wicked. They were disobeying the command of God. Rather than spreading out across the world to exercise God's rule, they remained together and sought to ascend into a whole nother realm that they didn't belong. What they thought was good was really evil. And that's the second point. We must admit that we are not good without God. We must admit that without God, we are evil. You see, we're not a good standard because we're not good. Humanism puts man in an untenable position. Perfection without God. But in reality, man is wicked without God. Just listen to Paul. Now, Carrie, a few years ago, Carrie gave me some great advice. She said, you spit out so many verses, it's like drinking through a fire hydrant. And I would do that. I would put verse after verse after verse, and I would just unload on people. And she said, we can't get it all. Just stop. <laughs> Slow down a little bit. In my defense, Paul does that in Romans 3. <laughs> Romans 3. Look at verse 10. As it is written. Now, he's talking about the fact that Jews and Greeks both are condemned. Okay? 
There's no advantage to one group over another group because they are both under the condemnation because they both sin against God. And here's how he proves it. He says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's quoting Psalm chapter 14 and Psalm 53. But that's not enough. Because now in the next verse, he goes to quote on Psalm chapter 5. All have turned aside. Jeremiah 5, 16. They have, let's see, they use, their throat is an open grave, excuse me, is Psalm 5. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 5. They use their tongues to deceive. Psalm 140, verse 3, the venom of asps is under their lips. Verse 14, he quotes from Psalm 10, verse 7, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Verses 15 and 16 quote Proverbs 1, verse 16, and Isaiah 59, 7. Their feet are are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery. And then verse 17 finishes the Isaiah 59 quote with verse 8. And the way of peace they have not known. By the way, there's an allusion to Luke chapter 1, the song of Mary in that verse 2. Then verse 18, quoting from Psalm 36, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I counted 10 quotations and one allusion in just those eight verses, nine verses, excuse me. Talk about drinking through a fire hydrant, straight out. Without God, we are hopelessly lost. The humanist is either too naive or too proud to admit that. We must reject humanism by recognizing that we are not good without God. Last thing that we need to do, we must recognize that we do need God. Only God, only God can help us. You might think at first glance that the story in Genesis 11 is missing this element. I mean, there's no, there's no point where the men say, oh man, we really screwed up here. There's no point where, where uh, when, when God confuses their language, they all disperse about all into the world. And then the very next, the rest of the chapter is the descendants of, of some of the descendants of Noah through his son Shem. What would, all, what would uh, later be known as the Semites? We would meet a guy named Abraham and his family, Terah, his father. And we would see how they start the journey on the way to Canaan. As God is leading them along the way, but how they stop. And then in chapter 12, we follow the story of Abram as God speaks to them and Abram obeys. But we don't really see the whole world repenting of its sin. We don't see them recognizing that we should have dispersed over the world. We should have done what God told us to do. We don't see them actually recognize their need for God. So where is it? Look in verse 6. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now that sounds out of place to me. First time I read that, I thought, why in the world would he say that? And then as I began studying, I, 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 this verse just kept poking its head out. Like, you're talking about the shortcomings of man as they're being revealed in verses 2, 3, 4, 5. But now in 6, God says anything they want to do, they can do. Something's, something's not right here. And I think, I think what's actually going on here is God saying, with a little bit of satire in his voice, I think he's saying that there's no limit to what they'll try to do. One verse of scripture, and I can't remember exactly how it goes. It just came to my mind, so I apologize for not having the reference. 
But it says that the heart of man is deceitful. The carnal mind is enmity toward God, the, the Apostle Paul writes. We are so wicked that there is no limit to how far we are willing to go to disobey God. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. It's not that man can achieve great things and i got to stop them before they, before they do something really terrible to me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is these guys are going to run themselves straight off a cliff and unless I put something in their way, they are doomed. So God says in verse 7, come. Just like man in verse 3 said, come, let us make bricks. And in verse 4, come, let us build. Now God says, come, let us go down. And they're confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. You know, the problem this whole time has been that all of these guys have been united around this evil purpose. I have to break them up for their own good. Otherwise, they will destroy themselves. I don't want another flood, God says. I don't want another case where I have to destroy the world because of the wickedness of humanity. See, they may not see that they need God, but God sees that they need God. And so he demonstrates his mercy by mixing up their languages. One language at the beginning, many languages at the end. In fact, the name Babel literally means mixed up, confusion. In Babylon, that's where that name comes from. That's what the city would be known as eventually. They stop building it for a while until somebody else comes in and they start building it back. Babylon becomes one of the great ancient cities and a testament throughout the scriptures to those that defy God and are under his curse. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The confusion, the different languages, the, the people not being able to understand one another, that's God's mercy. Without his grace, human beings would have no hope of redemption. So God intervenes and the future redemption remains a secure promise for him to fulfill. That's, that's the most important part of this story. God does whatever it takes to redeem sinful humanity, even to the point of mixing up their languages so they cannot pursue the evil they desire. God's plan always prevails. Question is, will we go along with it? Will we do according to our will or his? Will we worship the God of we, making humanity the standard of truth and goodness, forsaking God in the process? Or will we make God the standard and recognize our need for him? Will we serve the false God of humanism or the living God who created humanity in the first place? Father, we come to a decision point. We come to a place where we have to actually decide how then shall I live? Um, it's not enough just to accept these things in our brains. We got to take the next step. For some of us, that means that we need to change the way we're living because we're living for ourselves. We're measuring things based on ourselves. We're, we're, we're allowing ourselves to get in the way. For some of us, it may be that we look at the corporate and the communal and, and we look at ideas and, and ideologies and we think, well, well, those, those must be right. They sound right. They look right, but they reject you. Father, I pray this morning that we would reject the false gods. But rejecting the false god doesn't just mean saying, I believe in Jesus. It means staking our life on it. It means following you. It means doing what you call us to do, what you desire of us. It means forsaking our plans, even the plans that everyone agrees are good, even the plans that bring us in harmony with one another 
in obeying you. Show us what you want us to do, God. Give us the strength to carry it out. In this time, we are yours. We devote ourselves to you. Open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to receive your word and live it out. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.